Welcome to Ride Around the Road, the creative podcast that helps you get those pesky voices out of your head and onto the page. And remember, it's the journey that matters. Welcome to episode 101 of Ride Around the Road. This was going to be our episode 100, but we missed the boat as we always do. Uh, so today I'd like to introduce to you my very special girlpreneur, Samantha Hammond. Uh, Samantha is taking some time out to speak with us today before I bring on Cole Jones, who is an entrepreneurial educator, and you'll be listening to him in the main part of our our podcast today. Uh, It's interesting because Sam and I have just recorded uh, our conversation, and the thing that came through the most for Sam is that the spontaneity doesn't suit her way of thinking because she was scared and worried about what she could say and what she couldn't say and and what her boundaries were. And it's interesting because she's just come out of the educational system. And to me, it's, it's a real eye-opener because we control our kids. We control what they can say. We control what they do. And Sam has not gotten used to her freedom yet. Now that she's in the big wide world and going to university, she can actually say and do what she wants. So it's interesting to listen to this uh, next conversation with her as we talk about her journey uh, backwards and coming forwards and to listen to Sam being at a loss for words and and not knowing what she can say in a public forum. Uh, I'm hoping that I can get her onto the podcast on a more regular basis now and it'll be fantastic to watch her journey as she becomes more self-confident and to adopt the freedom, which is what this podcast is all about, the freedom of thinking, uh, which we engage in constantly here at home. Uh, so I was a little bit surprised to see her tongue-tied, and it's it's absolutely wonderful and gorgeous, and I certainly admire her for giving it a shot anyway. Uh, but next time she wants me to give her 20 dot points to talk about, and I thought, that's just not my style at all. Uh, makes for rigorous conversations outside the microphone, uh, but on the microphone, it's it's interesting to see how, despite Sam and I living together all the time, as soon as there's an audience, those restraints kick in. Uh, let, let's have a listen. Uh, love to hear your thoughts, love to hear your feedback. Uh, and then after that, we have our interview about entrepreneurial education with Cole Jones. Welcome to a very special episode of Writer on the Road. This is our episode 100 that turned into episode 101. And today I've been waiting a very long time to talk to this young lady. I'd like to welcome our very own girlpreneur, Samantha Hammond. Hello, good morning everyone. Yeah, now we're pretty excited about this because it's what we're all about here at Writer on the Road and working with our young scholars. But entrepreneurship is such a huge term nowadays and it's bandied around everywhere you go on the internet. And I've got a friend in QUT University who I speak to on a regular basis. He's been on the podcast before, Cole Jones. Uh, He teaches undergrad and postgrad entrepreneurship. And he's sort of been a bit of a guiding light for me. And he's coming on the podcast later on today after I speak to my beautiful uh, girlpreneur here. And he's going to give us some of the theory behind what I'll be talking with Sam about today. Uh, If you're in any way thinking about starting your own business or already have your own business and you're wondering why you're doing it and and what it's all about, this is a really good episode to listen to because we're all shaped by our own values and I've raised my girls to be independent thinkers and sometimes I've wondered whether I was on the right track. So I'm here to have a chat today to Sam 
because she's off on her own adventure. She's off to university and she's got her own life to shape. Uh, Sam, would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, what it was like to be at the Queensland Academies of Creative Industries and how exciting it is to be off uh, spreading your wings, I think is the cliche, (laughs) and, and starting out on your own journey? Yeah, okay, so I was at Quacky, the Queensland Academy for Creative Industries, since year 10. And I studied the IB program and um, theatre there. And it was really exciting because it taught me a lot of critical thinking skills, I think, especially in um, in theatre where we looked at philosophy and writing styles and creating your own work with integrity. And I'm looking forward to developing those skills at university where I'm going to UQ and studying law for something new and also continuing theatre and English. Yeah, and we're a little bit unsure about all of that at the moment because <laughs> yeah. she may just take off and travel around the world and go to every theatre if she can. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I just seeing all the different um, styles of theatre in different countries and learning more about art and life and good stuff. There are a lot of options that I still have to sort out, but yeah. yeah. Wouldn't it be good to be uh, 18 again, everybody, and having all those choices to make, I think? Sometimes I think, oh, I'm glad it's Sarah, not me. Uh, now, I have, as I said, uh, at the second half of this interview, we'll be talking to Cole Jones. Now, I've pre-recorded that interview, and I've had a lot of time to think about what was in that. Uh, when I say a lot of time, it was a couple of weeks ago. When we're thinking about our learning as educators, we think about content creation, we think about environment, and we think about passion. Uh, now, they're known as the godgy words in, in the <laughs> educational world, pedagogy, andrology, and herdagogy. Now, Cole is very interested in that third one, which is self-determined learners. And it's the importance of uh, the daydreamer. Now, we've built, uh, Sam and I have built our own, uh, I guess, framework for narrative writing, and we focus very much on that very early stage of of thinking and processing and we've, we've got our daydreamer and we've got our inspirer yeah. before we even put a pen to paper. Uh, Sam, the importance of the daydreamer, now you're, you're the expert to bring in here, what, <laughs> why is that so important from an educational point of view? An educational point of view? Um, I don't know, I think for me the idea of daydreaming is helpful because I like to ruminate and uh, stew on my ideas before I do anything with them. Um, Let's see, I think that it allows you to be a bit more self-reflective than you would if you were just kind of going off the bat and doing everything uh, as soon as you think of it, although that can have its place. But I think that balancing the idea of daydreaming with spontaneity allows you to get a more get a deep in your own learning and help others by stewing on your own ideas. <laughs> very deep, very deep. Very oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what, what, what's happening here this morning? What we're trying to do is we're trying to have a little think about why Sam's going off to university, why we do what we do, and how we, as I guess as parents and as teachers, we, we set our kids off on their journeys and make sure that they've got the skills. Now, I know there's an awful lot of emphasis on intellectual capacity, and getting an OP1 or getting an IB45, but I'm not convinced that that's what sets us up to be lifelong learners. And what I want to explore here with Sam today is is the other skills that I guess I've managed to give to Sam and Felicity, but also to the kids that are coming through our Young Scholars programs. And it's it's what our entrepreneurial philosophy is all about. Uh, Now, we talk about a student being capable of creating their own opportunities for satisfaction. And that's what what makes me almost tell Sam not to go to university at the moment and not get her degree. Because unless Sam can find what she wants to do and create her own opportunities for satisfaction, 
I guess the the pedagogical learning that comes along with it is not going to be all that beneficial because you can learn everything online nowadays, everyone. Any course that you want to do, you can pick up online. Uh, for example, I'm, I did, downloaded a little course on InDesign and I'm going to try and uh, learn to make my own magazines and pamphlets and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Pretty scary stuff. So when you, when you start this journey this year, what are the benefits for you at going to university at the, such an early age? Mm. Okay, well, I, I always think of this metaphor I read in Neil Gaiman's Make Good Art speech in which he talks about how you have to picture the thing you're trying to work towards as like a mountain and you uh, your, your job is to do whatever it takes to like, take one step further towards that mountain. And so whatever you do, um, just be focused on not turning away from the mountain and keeping going towards your ultimate goal. I think for me, university is a way to explore my options and try some things that I hadn't tried before. I was hoping to go to a theatre school in Victoria, but unfortunately I cannot. But I think that still going to YouTube, doing some different subjects like law, English and drama, will help me develop my own skills by, I'm using it as a forum for practicing my own skills, especially in drama. I'm also doing a young playwrights program with Playlab, and I'm using it as an opportunity to develop my own skills and work on my own projects in a structured environment with some deadlines in place for me. I think that, and I threw, I threw law in there just for something new because I thought it'd be boring to do the same subjects I always do. So I think that university is definitely an exploratory forum for me rather than a strictly based structured learning style. Yeah, and I've just got to pull Sam up a little bit there because we know that we were out at UQ the other day and we managed to find ourselves wandering into the law library <laughs> and we like the look of it and, and I think that's where the idea of throwing yeah, in a few law Yeah, I was subjects. always like, law is for the week, no one should do law and then I walked into the law library and I was like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> so, so the reason, um, and I use the word we're doing law because everybody <laughs> knows that I live my life vicariously through my children, um, but Sam's doing law, but I'm guessing there's some textbooks that I won't pick up. Um, <laughs> intellectuality, um, that, that's something that is a given. Uh, and that, that idea of exploring for its own purposes. I read in the papers on the weekend they released, uh, I guess, the chances of getting a job for undergraduates and what, what jobs are going to be make you most employable. And then it quoted the starting salaries. And it made me really sad, and it's one of the reasons where the conversation's going this way, is that we've created a world where... Um, wow, if you, if you be a doctor or a lawyer, you've mm. got 91% chance of, of being employable. And if you choose the creative arts, you're 53%. And I thought, how can that be? Yeah. And I thought maybe creatives um, actually create their own opportunities and they're not measured by some of these yeah. surveys. I think it's just a societal measure of utility or usefulness that doesn't really take into account different aspects of the human condition. <laughs> so I think that we place stock on certain subjects like law and medicine and if you are privileged enough to be able to do it, I think it's more important to follow your own heart and kind of create your own opportunities, like Mo was saying. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about um, Cole and his entrepreneurship teaching that we'll be talking about later. And it's interesting because we've got to be able to question why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and being able to tolerate uh, the ambiguity uh, that comes with, comes with moving forward, to, to spend another four years focusing on getting marks and getting a good yeah. job would have to be a little bit soul-destroying. And as you, you mentioned earlier, the, the journey along the way. And we don't know where that's going to take you, do we? No. I have no idea. <laughs> 
somewhere in the theatre industry, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. So if, if we were talking further about that, um, I guess that tolerance of ambiguity. Yeah. We, in our family, we, we live our lives like that. We never know where we're going to be from one day to the other. Uh, and that that's a risky way to live. Yeah. Um, but more and more, and this is, I think, why entrepreneurship is, is being bandied around a lot uh, nowadays in the 21st century. And and online and a lot of a lot of young people are, are taking that entrepreneurial road is because there, there's a lot of change happening in the world and nobody knows whether what the jobs are going to be in the future do you think that not only are you prepared by by having that high i guess that high tolerance of uncertainty that we can pass that on to our our young scholars as well oh i hope so yeah we definitely always try to implement techniques that help them shake up their own ideas and live in uncertainty and we were just talking this we ran a summer school earlier in the week and mel was always trying to make me she was like make them do exercises that pull them out of their comfort zones and i was like but their comfort zones are good for them and i think by the end of the week um i was starting to learn to help them shake up their own expectations because i i tend to like working in a very structured way when i'm teaching and i think my journey in the next couple of months is going to be to learn to step back and listen to what the group is kind of telling me and adapting my own plans based on that, which is something that we talk about a lot in theatre directing, kind of listening to the direction of a rehearsal and adapting your own style to that, which is something that I find difficult because I like to have, I have all these cool ideas and I want to show them to the kids and um, people I'm directing or whatever, and so I have them all planned out in advance. And being able to step back and ditch some of my own ideas and let their ideas come to the forefront is something I'm working on with, when working with them. Yeah. Now, this is a really interesting conversation, and I know it took us oh, 10 minutes to get here, but this is what really, really excites me. Our word of the week was called disruption, <laughs> and I've been very privileged um, to watch Sam come through in the last 12 months and, and actually call herself a teacher now, which is really, really good, or a mentor to our young yeah. students. Uh, but I found that this week, as, as I stepped back and as I listened, because I can just prowl around the, the peripheral and, and engage with, I guess... The, the feel and the vibe of, of the room as we're going. Yeah. And I found myself jumping in several times this... Actually, I found myself jumping in a lot this week and throwing what we call a spanner in the works yeah. and turning everybody in a completely different direction. Sam, describe that feeling early in the week when I did it to you the first few times. Well, I was like, this is not the plan, this won't work, this isn't like what we're trying to do. And I think that was because I'd set out too clearly what we were trying to do and defined it too early in the piece. I think that um, in on our first day, on our second day, we were doing story writing and Mel was like, okay, now we're going to watch this short film again and put all these sticky notes on the table. And I was like, but why is this relevant? And then because Mel had disrupted and thrown this spanner in the works, I was forced to adapt my plan to do that and therefore the kids had to adapt according to my instructions based on Mel's spanner. <laughs> they had to adapt to their own ideas and... I don't know, some of them were a little resistant to it because they liked setting their story ideas in stone and then they weren't really willing to change them, but I think that exposing them to that method of thinking early on will only help them when they encounter it again in a more structured or important setting. I think in exposing, it, exposing them to it in a safe, low-stakes forum will help them when they have to take on those skills in the real world. Whatever yeah. that means. And, and, oh, the real world will talk about yeah, that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, creative energy. Creative energy yeah. is what it's all about. And giving the kids permission to fail. Uh, now, I know I had one particular fail this week, and this student could not adapt 
to not having a teacher in front of them and telling them what to do. Now, I've always been a little bit of a, I guess, a rebel in that respect because I get right out of their way. And I actively encourage them to take their own responsibility and take their own lead. And that can be really, really scary for yeah. kids who have had a teacher in front of them day in and day out for 12 years, you know. Yeah. Uh, so to, to say... You're not allowed to ask me any questions. And we did this little exercise where the kids weren't allowed to ask me any questions. And I do this in the classroom all the time. And I had some pretty young kids there, like, oh, I guess, eight and nine. And they're dying to put their hands up and they're dying to ask a question. I said, there are no questions. I said, because you cannot get this wrong. Yeah. And by the end of the week, they were really happy to jump in and not ask any questions because they were excited because they had permission to actually create something out of the field and then bring it back to their main piece of work. And I did ask the question, Sam, well, what has this done to your work? And the response that we got is that it had taken them in directions that they never thought they would go. Yeah. And we just, the education system, and I'm talking about school here, not so much university and the work that Cole does, we're very locked in to traditional ideals of what's going to give you a good mark. Mm. Yeah. And I think we always kind of throw the onus back on our kids, especially we kind of just throw exercises at them and see what they take out of them. And we don't explicitly say you need to do it like this. And this is the learning goals and the learning objectives from the um, from the exercise. But I think if the kids are able to get out of their own way and engage in what we're asking them to do, they find that it does have benefit to their work, I think. And I think that was a problem for some of our older students in particular who were like, this is dumb. It's just like a game for kids or whatever. And I think that asking them to engage with integrity or genuinely in the exercise allowed them to um, encounter ideas they hadn't previously thought of. Yeah, and there's this wonderful quote that comes up by Barry Maltz and it's, you need to be a little bit crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think that you do. And I think this is where creativity and entrepreneurship, which are the two key words of the, uh, I guess, the new learning, uh, I'm really glad to see that that they are, they are the key words of the 21st century and it's good to be a little bit crazy because one of the key attributes of entrepreneurship that Cole talks about is a balanced sense of humour. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing in our family, have you grown up with the fact that knowing if you fail, you're allowed to cry but then you're allowed to laugh? Yeah. Yeah, I think having a, a lighter outlook on life, that helped me a lot in the workshops. I was getting stressed and I was like, Sam, just take a, take a step back and remember that you're allowed to fail as well. <laughs> And it's, it's a forum where it's safe to take a lighter perspective on things. And I think that's, I guess, a skill that I've learned through my family and through school. And one that I'm still learning is being able to view everything as an adventure or an opportunity rather than as something we have to perform to a set standard. And I think we talk a lot about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And I think that's um, a characteristic of a growth mindset is not forcing yourself to to perform to a set ideal of what you should be achieving. And I think that's something I'm still struggling with. Well, I, we'll, we'll let her struggle, everyone, um, <laughs> at the age of 18. We'll let her grow a little bit further. Oh, yes. But I've been practising you since you were in six, Sam. What's wrong? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, such a, I'm, just, I'm a failure as a learner. Yeah. I'm not performing to the standard to which I should. Yeah. Um, you've got all, all your life to strive. Yeah. Uh, now, we talk about provocations. That's another word that comes up a lot with entrepreneurship. And we're talking about mental health and freedom and being a rebel with a cause. Now, if there's one thing I can say, Sam, that I watch you with delight and I watch your rebellion and you, you, have, you have that cause, I think, firmly embedded in your psyche. 
and I think that's to go out and make a difference. Um, and I'm talking theory here because uh, I don't think you're going to go out and beat drums and things. No. But you're pushing your intellectual boundaries every day of the week, aren't you? Yeah, and I think exploring subject matter and forms in my art in particular, I've always kind of, because I'm... I don't know, I'm reading a lot of political stuff lately and I think that it always, I always come back to the fact that the way I can make a difference or I can explore these changes politically is through the art I create because I can explore um, the subject matter or the, the experimental forms and tie them together, the ones that stick with me. And I think what you were saying about using pushing the intellectual capacities through your work is to me about marrying experimental forms with the experimental content. Yeah, and universities, I think, and especially the new universities like QUT, they're really opening opening up to marrying new ideas. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, we've gone and put Sam into UQ, which is a far more traditional university. Um, but I do believe that they're shaking up even their law department, I think I was reading. So it'll be interesting to have, maybe we should make this an annual conversation to see <laughs> where it takes us. Yeah. Uh, but one, And, again, I, I refer back to entrepreneurship and I refer back to Cole. And it talks about the journey of learning and how it's about, it's not about content and it's not about drill and skill and it's not about the marks you get. Because as Sam's already discovered, once you leave school, no one's ever going to ask you your marks again. That is in the past. You spend 12 yeah. years striving for this stupid mark and now it doesn't matter. And as teachers, we try to tell the kids that all the time and then we push them to get the mark. So, And that's you know. why we had a really interesting, the girl who ducked our grade last year came back and talked to us and she was like, because this mark isn't going to matter to you and because for all the hard work you put in, you can't rely on your mark because there's so many things that could go wrong with chance. Like I failed my English essay because of chance. Um, or I, I did worse than I usually do. And that's, she said, the most important thing is not working hard to get the mark. It's working hard to better yourself and to... Because if you engage genuinely in the challenges it throws at you for your own sake, then you're taking what you want from the, the system you're in. And that was something that I tried to remember at Quacky I was doing my theatre work not because I wanted to get a seven in theatre but because I wanted to learn more about the art form of theatre and I tried to apply that to everything that I did at Quacky. Yeah and we're talking about uh, it's not the content of, of a, yeah. a subject that it's matters. It's skills you learn. Yeah and it's a way of thinking and it's coping yeah. with whatever life throws at you and if that's not a skill for the 21st century I don't know what is and if it's not it's not um, something uh, that we we teach very well, and I know I know we try, um, but we get very locked into those systems. Uh, and it's interesting to watch a lot of the writing around entrepreneurship at the moment. Every second entrepreneur that I come across at the moment is how to write a book in ninety days. But I've actually pulled my stuff down. I just can't do it. And I said yeah. to Sam, "What is our point of difference? Why are we doing this?" And um, well, Sam, your, your response to that? I think our point of difference is that we're focusing on the exploratory nature of the journey we're taking. And for me, Mel frames it as being focused on writing excellence, and I agree with that because I think that our point of difference is allowing people time to work on their projects, and that allows them to aspire to a higher standard of quality. Not in the objective academic sense in that your book contains three metaphors, one motif and a symbol, but the fact that it's it's coming from a genuine place in your heart and being able to work on your book for an extended period of time or your project and therefore pour your genuine heart and soul into it will always create a better quality piece of work than if you 
try to write it out to a set standard. Yeah, and and I think that's why the direction that I had locked in for myself in 2018 and call me arrogant, I thought, oh, we'll just keep building on what we've done, done in 2017 and we'll just keep and we'll do more and more. And what's happened, and it's making me really scared, is I can't do it. I, and I was talking to Sam about this uh, only this morning. I'm bored. I, and if I'm bored, that's a really scary thing. Yeah. My sister's listening to this. Sorry, Boonsy, but we're going to change directions again. Woo! Um, constantly disrupting myself. It's like um, Sherlock when you shoot the wall when you're bored. Yeah, we're not having a Sherlock conversation we here today. Should. Everyone, do not listen to my daughter talk about Sherlock Sorry. Holmes. Uh, but it's interesting because if we talk about disruption, we talk about... Uh, I guess it's a skill that people aren't used to and it can lead to... Well, it can lead to poverty. We're very good at that. <laughs> um, but it's certainly, I've always said that the most interesting things happen on the edges. And I've, I've taught, I think, Sam and Liz very much that the most interesting things happen on the edges. And unfortunately for me, poor old Felicity loves being centre of the circle and likes safety and security and all those yeah. kinds of things. And she ended up with me as a mother. Um, but getting back to our direction for 2018, I'm not as confident that I've locked that in now. Yeah. And Sam's journey and I, my journeys are still intertwined, but we're, neither of us know exactly where either of us will end up this time <laughs> next year, do we? Nope. No. So what, what, I'm, what I'm thinking of with the direction of our business is I think I will probably do some more academic study around this, this idea of, of changing direction, of disrupting, and how we can engage our kids to be risk takers. And to be risk takers, not only in their learning, but in their in their thinking. Yeah. Um, now we've got some very young entrepreneurs coming through, and we I'm going to be running some weekends around these skills for our young people in 2018. And that's the kind of thing that really really excites me. We'll still have all our essay writing. We'll still have all that kind of stuff, but pushing those boundaries to encourage others to come along um, on the journey with us. When you get out into the big wide world, Sam. I'm guessing that, like, Cole teaches his stuff at postgraduate level as well. Where do you picture yourself being in five years' time? Oh, well, I actually did this in French and I wrote that I was going to be living in the basement of the British Library with five cats watching Hamilton every night. <laughs> so that's still a dream. But, or, like, retiring to a mountain somewhere and making theatre. I think more realistically, I, I still don't know. I think that there are like there are several life paths that I have to kind of choose between or some find some way to combine them. I'd like to I'd like to do postgraduate study in Victoria at the theatre school there, VCA, or possibly go to Oxford or an Rhodes scholarship and study English there, or ditch all of it and go see theatre all around the world, or I might even come up with something different after doing law. I don't know, but I think I like the I like to take it day by day and just go go with what um, fascinates me the most and what allow myself to learn more and change my path based on what I am learning so rather than deciding it now yeah and the problem that we have there everybody is we don't know what learning will look like uh, in the next five years let alone you know the next 10 yeah. 15 20 years I'm still waiting for me to grow up um, I have this horrible feeling that Sam will be waiting all her life for her to grow up as well. But we talk about that, um, I guess, that transitionary mind, that trans transitionary mindset about separating ourselves from the herd, separating our kids for a, from the herd, giving them some skills, giving them some mindsets, disrupting their thinking, 
then sending them back to their school, sending them back to their classrooms so that they can engage in the conversations uh, that, that they've um, been having with us and have them with their peers. And hopefully in that way, if we all start to question a little bit and we all start to shake things up a little bit, we're developing, I guess, that, um, that I don't call it a new way of thinking, but it's certainly a creative way of thinking. Uh, I'm hoping to take this out into the um, big wide world and do some leadership training as well. And I have absolutely no idea how it will go because changing people's minds is almost impossible, isn't it? Yeah, but it's more easier with games and stuff. Did you just hear everyone? Sam, I... Sam <laughs> Hammond on, on public record. Uh, 2018, the 14th of January? Yeah. 15th of January. No, yeah. it's not. She just said more easier in I public. Did. I love it. I um, think that what I was trying to say though, Mel, was um, allowing ourselves to have that still have that light, humour-filled mindset and go out and work with adults and try and embrace, help them embrace their inner child by playing games, by having those those new ways of learning, which for me are all about honesty and playfulness and combining those. Yeah, honesty and playfulness. I like it. Right, last thing uh, in Cole's, uh, I guess, um, attributes of um, students creating opportunities for self-satisfaction is the uncommon interest in the commonplace. Now, what an interesting conversation to have, and we haven't got time to have it fully, but what, what, do, you, what do you take from an uncommon interest in the commonplace? Well, I think of my main man Brecht and his idea of uh, the Verfram Dings effect, which is when you, you take these familiar elements of your life um, things that everyone accepts for granted, social structures, the way we perceive life around us, and you twist them slightly and look at them from a new way that enables people, it, it empowers people to see the see the ways they can change their own circumstances. Brecht used it as a political tool, and he said that it was when you, you twisted an item slightly, a social construction, and showed people that it was something that they could change themselves. And so for me, I think taking an uncommon interest in a commonplace is about looking at the common objects around me and thinking about the way that I as an individual interact with them and the responsibilities or opportunities I have with those things. So taking an unusual perspective on these social structures and constructions. Yeah, and as teachers, we can do nothing but, uh, I guess, tap into the passion of our students, enable enable them to grow in the direction that they want to go and not put roadblocks in front of them and say, you've got to go out and get this job and you've got to be this kind of person because those jobs aren't going to exist. Uh, so I think the biggest gift we can give uh, to our students nowadays is to say, creativity matters, think outside the square, yeah. adapt some of these, I guess, these attributes of, of the entrepreneurial mind and and run with them, uh, fail, fail, and fail really, really well. If you're gonna fail, make sure it's a spectacular fail. I am, I am really, really good at it. Um, but what we've also gotta make sure is that we've got those res that resilience um, and those safety nets in place so that you're failing in a safe environment, uh, whatever yeah. happens with Sam in the next few years. If you can put a safety net in place, and if not, you just have to kind of free dive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we jump over cliffs all the time. But we do have, I think our safety net, Sam, and this is something we all need to think about, is our safety net is intellectual curiosity. Mm. Our safety net is knowing that whatever life throws at us, uh, we will survive and thrive. And getting that through to our kids is is a tough call nowadays because I guess there's a lot of fear out there um, and there's certainly a lot of fear around, around our adults. Um, but if you have a look around and you have a look at entrepreneurs and I'm, 
I'm thinking of Founder and I'm thinking of um, Antil Magazine and I'm thinking of all those other guys in Australia who are taking young entrepreneurial minds and helping them grow. And some of these guys are making multi-million dollar businesses and you know what? They've got no intellectual rigor or academic skills whatsoever, but they're thriving in, in this, I guess, in this environment where disruption is um, for, for the quick, the people who get there first and making mm. the big dollars and the those early of us bird gets the worm. <laughs> yeah and those of us who are going to university are just getting left behind saying are you sure you want to go to university where else can i go <laughs> i want to go to the university library even though i can't because i've got 240 dollars worth of energy fines yeah all right and <laughs> yeah. that's it we're going to wind this one up now because I, I would really love you to listen to what cole's got to say he's the expert in this subject uh you can find him at uh, www.teaching-entrepreneurship.com uh, He's got some great books out. He's always an inter- interesting man to speak to. He's been on the podcast before and he certainly will be on there again. And we'll keep you posted with what Sam gets up to. But in the meantime, she'll be tutoring our kids and I'll be sitting back and watching. And welcome to a very special edition of Writer on the Road. I'm really excited to welcome back a man who inspired me on my journey and has gotten me to the point where I am. But I've found that I'm now ready to go to the next level, so I've called him back again. Uh, welcome, Cole. You know, I th- well, thank you very much, Mel. Um, I, I feel like it's sort of like uh, you've got a little orbit going and you're moving somewhere. And I've got a little orbit going, and we every now and again our orbits just sort of come in contact with each other, you know. So there's not, nothing parallel about it, but you're doing your thing, and I'm either doing my thing, and then there's other people we're trying to uh, assist and help, and you sort of hope that you can we can take a lot of people with us. And I think one of the challenges we might get to today is a realization that we can help people, but we can't help all people. Yeah. Now, today, everybody, just as by way of introduction, Cole is an entrepreneurial educator or entrepreneur and uh, enterprise educator at Queensland University of Technology, but he's so much more as well. And he's just got back from this wonderful trip overseas that we're going to pick his brain on later on. But first of all, Cole maybe you could fill us in on where you're at with with your own, I guess, educational pedagogy we'll start with the pedagogy and we'll move on to the others yeah well look um when i think of the word pedagogy i'm thinking about what it is i do what i'm responsible for and uh you alluded to the other things uh, that they connect to my students pedagogical learning which is what they do what they bring to the table and then there's this thing in the middle um and it's the andragogical space where we create the self-directed learner that's where there's an agreement tacit or you know implicit that sort of says uh who's responsible for getting these resources who's responsible for this the the nature of this learning and so when i think of myself from a pedagogical perspective i'm thinking about myself as the actions i'm taking to create an environment where i can enter into agreements with students about the self-directed nature of their learning so i I don't see my students as being anything other than adults. So the majority of the literature that I'm increasingly embedded in is about adult learning. 
Yeah. Now, everyone, as you know, I've just gotten back from three weeks' wonderful, wonderful holiday down on the uh, northern New South Wales coast. And one of the comments that came to me, and it really struck me, and it was from Annie Seaton's husband. Hi, Ian. And he said, with me and my daughters, it was there was no line between who was the adult and who were the children. We were just three people living and learning and loving together. And I find that that's the way I've always brought up my children and now I'm responsible for our young scholars. And we're doing the same thing and we're learning together. Uh, if we don't give them that uh, permission to be the best they can be, Cole, they never know how far they can go, do we, can they? No, absolutely right. And I think one of, the, one of the real challenges we've got is that our education system has, in a way, mollycoddled the process of learning. It's almost like, we're going to put your learning today in this box. This box is the focus is this and the expected outcome is that, rather than just taking the walls and the lid away and simply saying, so where are you at with this? And trying to, you know, bring that imagination, bring that expectation into the space, but most importantly, allow the students to have individual learning journeys, which I think our systems, our educational systems, regardless of the educator's um, intentions, passions, abilities. I think over the years, too many educators have been required to teach into a system rather than to actually teach who they are. Yeah, and it's really, really interesting because you mentioned the word entrepreneurship now and there are so many people out there making their own way and being very, very successful. Um, but there's always the risk of failure. Now, if you fail, it's just part of the learning process and off you go again. Is, is that how you, um, I guess, is that how you see it? Yeah, look, it's actually a timely conversation. I'm about to go to London in a couple of weeks um, and we're launching the, go back one step, the Quality Assurance Association in the UK so it's a bit like in Australia, we have the ISO 9000 regulation. If you want to put a PowerPoint in, this is the right way to do it. Well, entrepreneurship education and enterprise education have their own quality assurance guide. It's the only subject area in the United Kingdom that actually has a guide. And it was developed in 2012, and we've just updated it. And this very issue is quite central to a diagram, which I can send through to you <coughs> shortly, um, and this will be released on the 18th of January. And so failure is something that we see as being a very useful part of people's learning at the bottom of our triangle, that is when they're learning about themselves and they're learning about their world. But it's a really bad thing to have happen in your life when you're at the very top, if you're saying, I'm going to go and do this venture. So there are, there's a time when we want to use failure in a really positive way to help people sort of push through some mental barriers, and there are times when we want to get make sure they actually understand how to protect themselves from failure. So there's two, and that sort of separates entrepreneurship education from enterprise education. Enterprise education is very much about educating yourself about who you are and what you can be capable of, and entrepreneurship education is very much about how do I convert this unique idea I've got into some way of creating value and capturing that value. And... Um, the two get conflated a lot. The problem we have when we conflate them is that we then misunderstand the, the potential roles of failure. 
Yeah. Now, copy that down, everybody, because we are actively encouraging everyone around us to be entrepreneurial now. We're trying to be entrepreneurial ourselves. Uh, now, you've, you've listened by now to my uh, podcast chat with my daughter, our girlpreneur coming through, and I'm actively encouraging her to, to be the best she can be and follow her dreams. And I'm telling her, Cole, at the age of 18, that it's okay to fail, and if you don't fail, it means you're not you're not um, you're not achieving or you're not pushing yourself to the be, be the best you can be. Yeah, so look, f- fame is part of life. I, I can I wrote a book where I focused on quite a lot of my little failures and bigger failures, right? So none of us are going to escape failing, right? Whether we let our pride get in the way um, or not, um, but. There's failing viewed as a philosophical issue. That is, don't worry about where you're at, you know, learn from it and move forward. But we don't want people to say, oh, looking forward, I'm just going to go forward and fail. So we, we want to minimise the impact of failure, right? But we don't. But we also want to embrace the fact that it is going to happen. And so I, I meet a lot of students in, in university who have done very well in school. They've, they, you know, they're, they're sort of the A-level student. They've sort of gone through really relatively unchallenged in terms of failing. And I give them an opportunity to fail, which in the first instance they hate me for. And then if I'm successful, they end up thanking me for it because they then realise actually all that pressure they were putting on themselves to always succeed didn't actually need to be there. They can actually also see that failure and experimenting with things and not assuming you can get it right the first time can actually be a really productive um, mechanism for increasing your uh, increasing your learning. Yeah, I do it to my high school kids all the time and get thrown out of school after school. I tell them that uh, if, if, if you're finding this really, really easy, then you're doing it incorrectly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and we're working, I'm working with our, our young scholars, our writing excellence programs where, where I actually encourage them to try new things and experiment and, and push their boundaries. And they go back to their schools and their schools say, oh, no, you don't do it like that. And I'm going, well, there's life beyond school. You're going to hit university and there's going to be no one telling you what to do. Uh, you're going to go out in the big wide world and you're going to start perhaps not in a job, you're going to start your own business, as you said, and find your own space and follow your own passions. Now, working in a university setting, as you said, with adults, are you finding that um, young people are embracing those challenges and, and getting out there and creating opportunities for themselves? Uh, yes, but only only a minority because the system still has that sense um, that this piece of paper you get is going to be of great value to you, right? And so for, for some students, that is absolutely true, right? If you become a qualified doctor or engineer or accountant, that piece of paper is like a key that you're going to use to open a door with. But there are many other degrees that you get that the paper really doesn't have a great instant value that you can use. Um, it's It really comes back to what you got out of it, but your own recognition of what you got and how you use it. So it's almost like an internal game of, of movement that you're going to create for yourself as opposed to I'm going to hold this piece of paper up. So that's most probably the biggest challenge is that uh, university is not the same thing for all people, but many people think that it is. And so that's one of the big challenges we've got. We've got a... We've got, um, 
we've got some challenges in front of us, I think. Um, but we all do, and maybe we'll be playing out this challenge um, and the, the university system as we know it will just disappear below our feet. So while we're trying to create something, something else will come in from the side, online learning, programs like what you're trying to do uh, and, you know, the endeavours that you've got. Maybe more and more of these things will spring up and you'll find a way to connect to other outside bodies and people say, oh, we recognise what Mel does. If someone's gone through that program, you know, well, then we would recognise that. And you see this now, Ernest and Young um, have many job positions now that they don't require a university degree for. And that's actually now a trend. The people are starting to see that the university graduate is actually restricted in their ability to think and act in certain ways for certain job categories. So that's a very interesting development because that says to universities, mm, you better change the type of graduate you're creating, otherwise we're just going to keep not wanting them. Yeah. So it's now, everyone, uh, for those of you who are outside Australia and for those of you who are in other states of Australia, Cole works at uh, what we call a young university and it has a great relationship with industry and it's Queensland University of Technology and it is actually forging some of those relationships that make, I guess, students more employable, but it also shows that we can no longer... Um, treat university, I guess, scholarship as the ultimate pinnacle of success. And we see it in the online um, world all the time. Everyone knows my passion is online learning. Uh, now, you've been overseas and you've just come back from uh, some wonderful countries, everybody, if nothing else, just for the trip itself, uh, Tampa, Geneva, Liverpool and Belfast. And you've done mm. some pretty amazing things over there. Uh, I know we're jumping around a bit, a little bit, but I did warn you. Can you tell us what the thoughts are coming from those places about new ways of learning? Well, in Tampa, the focus of my work there is very much on competency development. So it's really about trying to create a student that regardless of the situations they face in life, they'll have actually developed a competency, a range of competencies that will enable them to be entrepreneurial in those contexts. So. Um, it's really about enabling people to be capable of action. We talk about, uh, in the enterprise education context, we talk about someone being capable of self-negotiated action. So that's, that's our, at the moment, our current sort of aim is to produce graduates capable of self-negotiated action. So a very big part of that is the competency development. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, we our kids go off and do um, Boy Scouts or Girl Guides and they get their badges and, you know, at some point if we were to throw them back out into the bush, we'd assume that they could make a tent, that they could light a fire, that they could do a range of survival-style activities that they've developed competencies in that they've been given their badge for. And so in a sense we're thinking about, you know, okay, so what are the competencies that relate to being entrepreneurial that would enable someone in their future career development? And so that's sort of very much what they're focused on in Tampa. What I like about what they're doing um, is their focus is very much on um, a performance situation. So it's like we can only consider the development of a competency against a performance situation. So it's a very authentic way of learning, whereas a lot of competency development, which is happening you know, globally, is very much about personal, personal self-assessment. Self now, do you feel like you're more confident about your ability to do this from one to five? You know, as opposed to someone actually saying, well, I've observed you, you know, and I can see you can or you can't, right? Um, 
In Geneva, the the focus there was working with the United Nations on their assessment processes, their global assessment processes for enterprise education. So it's what actually is the focus? What do we need to be actually understanding and how do we differentiate that focus from enterprise education where we might be trying to uh, focus on, say, um, um, perspective transformation. So how does someone perceive the world differently right through to the top of the triangle where we're sort of saying, okay, well, you're engaged in this entrepreneurial action. So are we talking about the startup, the sales, number of customers? And so we've got this real range of outcomes which we need to be thinking about what we're actually assessing. We can't just have one way of assessing it because it's such a varied journey for so many students. In Liverpool, uh, I was working with the Enterprise Academy, which is a way of getting staff members at Liverpool John Moores University to all think about how they create and capture value in their student um, classrooms. And so whether you're a criminologist or a, or a phys ed teacher, it's not about business, starting business. It's about the process of what value you're trying to create for them and how you're helping them to capture that value. And that was a pretty cool uh, journey. Uh, I read this book just before I got there, which is called A Primer for Philosophy and Education, which I absolutely love. And so I came out. Uh, I announced to the to the audience that when I did my presentation, I said, well, I've chosen Liverpool to come out, and everybody's looking at me in this anticipation. I said, "I'm coming out. I'm I'm coming out as a philosopher of adventuring," and uh, and so then I talked to them about that. You know, this notion of being a philosopher of adventuring, and so that was fun. And then Belfast was a conference, so we talked, uh, had some new ideas to share with people at the conference in relation to. Um, how we can actually think about enterprise and entrepreneurship education in, in very holistic ways, ways that actually allow us to embrace the context, the varied context that we all operate in, the varied learning styles that our students prefer, the varied outcomes that our students uh, have currently or in the future to to benefit from from enterprise education. Yeah. And that- Sorry. And then I came home. <laughs> came home for Christmas, everybody. Yeah. Uh, now, what Cole's talking about is really, really exciting because he's working within the system and he's working with adults. And it'd be great to see some of this stuff filtered down into the schools and, and have these entrepreneurial kids uh, supported, valued and nurtured. And that look, that may happen over time as well. Um, but to put what you're doing in a real-life uh, context... Entrepreneurship is so huge now, as, as I said earlier. Are you finding that your students are seeing more success having completed your courses? Um, because it's almost like uh, doing a course on entrepreneurship and being an entrepreneur are contradictory. Uh, we don't hear of any of our, we don't hear all our successful entrepreneurs going, well, I started out doing a course. It's almost like they do the opposite. They ignore education, they shoot their English teachers, and then they go out and do this other thing. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Last week I was in Tasmania. My daughter was graduating from uni, and so I went down for that. And I also caught up with a whole range of students across many different years, um, some who graduated 10 years ago, some who graduated three years ago. And um, I have a, I'm right in the middle of writing a manifesto uh, for um, a new book I'm writing, which is How to Teach Entrepreneurship. And, and 
I'm trying to demonstrate the value of writing a manifesto for the reader. So, and I think, well, I better offer up a manifesto so that they can actually understand what I'm talking about. And one of the, and there's a bunch of, and my manifesto is a, a range of syllogisms. And one of them, I won't give you the whole syllogism, but one of them is about uh, never falling for the trap of living vicariously for your students' outcomes. So I'm happy for them to live vicariously for their own outcomes, but I can't do that. And so, and we had this conversation last week with some of the students, and so I could never know whether the students would have, they might have gone off and done better, right? Well, they may not have gone better, but the general consensus with research we've done on my past students and with those sorts of conversations is that they gain confidence. So it's not a pearl of wisdom that they get, but they gain the confidence to dig deeper, to go and ask more questions, to believe that they have got this capacity for value creation. And so I would say that that's most probably, and there is a contradiction because some students just want to get, what have I got to do to get the highest mark? So they're trying to cheat the system as opposed to embrace the system. And the big problem we've got at the moment is that entrepreneurship, as you said, is a very hyped thing. You know, if you walked into an education department and you said, hey, I've got some great ideas on entrepreneurship education, they'd say, fantastic, we've got, we need initiatives in that space, we need something. But I doubt that too many education departments around the world actually understand what enterprise and entrepreneurship education is and can be, uh, it, other than something that they need to have an initiative to address. And so they'll embrace something. But what typically happens is that we have students who have not found themselves, right? So they're, uh, they're in this unconscious herd of people that in society, in a classroom, and the course allows that unconscious herd to move a little bit to the left or a bit to the right, right? And they can say, okay, you've completed this, all right? And some of you completed a bit better than others, and some of you are a little bit further behind the herd, sort of may have spread out a little bit or whatever it might be. But the real challenge of transformative learning in the context of entrepreneurship education is to actually allow the individual to become separated from the herd and to actually discover something that's unique about their own temperament, how their personality, how that gives rise to sort of a certain learning personality, a certain uh, societal personality, uh, and for them to become conscious of that so that they can actually understand that when they go back into that herd, they now come back with this more authentic union. You know, it's like, okay, I mean, I'm with you all, but you know what? I actually understand the nature of the interactions we're going to have now, rather than there being this unconsciousness. So we can go all the way back to, to Dewey, to Lindemann, the whole range of people who have talked about this habitual experiences that we engage with. And there's something that uh, that really prevents us from actually being able to step back and understand the experience. That's the challenge of entrepreneurship education. And quite often, the, what we're confronted with if, are people who want to know what's the content, what's the curriculum look like, you know, where's the quality assurance for how you're going to get from A through to B. How do we know that everyone did that, you know? And many of our suckers are sitting there thinking, you're not interested in that. <laughs> I'm interested in the student. 
I'm interested in the light bulbs that come on in their mind and their heart. I'm interested in the question marks that they're now asking at the end of the semester, as opposed to the ticks that they've viewed that they've got along the way. That's the big challenge that we all face. Yeah, I'm sitting here having a bit of a chuckle call. I teach, I've started this little enterprise of my own, uh, English for Homeschoolers. And all the parents want to know is, what is the curriculum? Will they get a certificate at the end? And I said, well, I'm more about engaging with my kids and, and encouraging them to be the best they can be. And I can give you a curriculum, but it's only ever going to be a starting point. And they don't quite understand that. They just want to have their tests and their NAPLANs and tick them off and go away. And I said, well, you may as well go and buy your curriculum off Disney or something because I'm not going to do it for you. Uh, but it, it's, it's interesting because there are some wonderful young entrepreneurial kids out there. And I think there's so much potential um, to see that nurtured and, and have that grow. But that whole measuring thing is quite difficult, isn't it? So I'm going to have to put some something up on the page to show, as you said, the competency so that they can be ticked off and the parents can be happy. I think most people can relate to education not being perfect. Everyone gets an education of sorts, right? Uh, but then if you ask people to reflect back on it, hey, so when you went to school, do you think that everyone started on the same starting line and they all managed to cross the same finishing line? And, and, and was there, were they pretty close when they hit the line? Was it a blank finish? And everyone can sort of say, well, yeah, regardless of when I went to school, no, we all didn't start from the same line because some of us were actually a year and a half older than the other kids for a start. So that made a pretty big difference in terms of their own personal development. And lots of things happen along the way, especially as you get older, right, into high school. There's lots of all sorts of um, psychological challenges that people go through. And no, people don't hit the same line. So... If you can accept that there's this huge variance in the learning experience, why would you assume or want someone to create a learning experience which assumes that everyone's going to experience the same thing? It's sort of like repeating the same misguided assumptions about education. So it's almost like if only we could discover where your child is in terms of where their starting line is, not my starting line, but their starting line, you know, maybe they're that far in front of the starting line. They don't need to go all the way back and start again here. Maybe we'll just really focus on this thing that they're really cool. Maybe someone's so far behind the starting line that we need to actually help them to actually understand certain issues or actually celebrate the fact that they're back there. Or maybe there's something unique about that. I remember hearing a story once about uh, a disabled person who was struggling to get into the workforce and the employment company really struggled to, you know, to position or market this person's abilities it was almost like well, he's always going to come second or third or fourth or whatever compared to any other applicant and one day by chance he was asked to look after a warehouse you know for a friend or whatever he said oh, i've got to i've got to go and do something i'm it's a bit of an emergency can you just there's someone will be bringing a delivery can you is it okay if you just wait here for this well as it turns out he got even more waylaid and he comes back and he's thinking this guy's going to be so upset you know it's 10 hours later and and this guy's just sitting there very patiently, very happy. And he realized that this person had a fantastic ability to wait. He's very good at waiting. In fact, he was excellent at waiting. And he just had endless patience, right? And uh, so all of a sudden, they were able to find this person a job because they said, okay, who needs somebody who is just brilliant at waiting? right? And it was the same sort of position, right? 
But we don't look at people and say, okay, uh, what's your CV look like? Where's your, what do you like at waiting? It's just not, it's on our CVs, right? And I suspect with a lot of our learners, we've got people who've got these really hidden talents, you know, and we just don't see them. So we don't, we get to get you to the starting line. And so we ignore something they're really good at by dragging them up to this sort of uniform assumed line. And then we get them to run with everyone else. And of course, we're left behind the thing that they're actually really good at, that we could have built something around. And um, that's one of the challenges I think that we've, we've all got with education at the moment is we're acknowledging that in 20 years' time, the world will look vastly different with artificial intelligence, um, robots, um, large organisations not wanting to sort of employ people in an office but at home and a whole range of different ways in which the world of work will organise. But we're not changing education to actually to, to embrace the fact that many people aren't going to be given a job where they're nurtured through a company, you know, you know, no, no one's going to be in the mail room and become the president of the organisation. That that's a myth from the past that ain't going to get repeated in the future. But they can become the president of their own organisation, and it may be an organisation of one person. Um, that's very very possible. Everyone can find a a niche in the world where they're doing something that's incredibly unique and. Uh, and we should be encouraging people to actually understand what their true abilities and talents are so that they can actually develop a capacity for exploring that niche. Mm. Okay, everybody, you know why I've got him on now. You can hear he's a little mini-me, isn't he, Lou? <laughs> we push this barrow all the time, Cole, but nobody believes me. Uh, now, Cole is very well qualified, so everybody, if you don't believe me, please believe Cole. Uh, I want to move on along now to creative leadership. Uh, what are some of the things, if you were to talk about creative leadership and you were going to encourage your organisations and your corporates to take on some of these uh, learning ideas and these learning styles to encourage a more creative workplace, what are some of the things that you would you would actually bring to the table? Well, I think it, there's a couple of real big challenges in the in the corporate sort of space. One is hierarchy, um, and the other are, are assumed roles, which obviously marry up quite neatly with hierarchy. So, let's think of an organisation where there's a boss. And the boss gets paid, you know, $200,000. And let's think of um, the bottom of the tree where someone just joined and they're doing a fairly menial sort of job and they're getting paid $30,000 or $40,000. And then we have a whole raft of different levels of employment in between from very senior positions through to, you know, supervisory type positions more down the bottom. So let's say there's a problem. Let's say we need to develop some sort of creative problem-solving to address that. So we're all sitting in a room and I'm going to try and create this uh, situation where we can draw on the intellectual horsepower of everyone that's gathered. But the reality is everyone knows there are consequences for challenging the hierarchy, right? So the person who just started isn't going to sort of have a crack at the person on $200,000 and sort of say, I think that's a crazy idea why don't we do this? And no one's going to listen to the person who's talking because they don't understand the culture, they don't understand the customer base, they don't. And so all of the assumptions that are written, riddled right throughout that place are going to sort of hold the day, but the hierarchy is going to hold the day. And ultimately, you, we're going to use 
bit like our computers. We only, most of we use 10% of the potential personality um, variables that are in that room to try and solve a problem, and almost probably use some sort of traditional means of doing it. So, one, you've got to get rid of the hierarchy. That's the first thing you have to do. Uh, two, you have to have at least an hour a week or a half a day or whatever it might be when there's no such thing as a bad idea, when any idea is possible and, and we don't have judgment. The way I demonstrate this to people is when I'm, when I'm presenting in and around these sorts of issues, I just, it's not spontaneous to me because it's planned, I've done it hundreds of times, but it appears spontaneous to the audience. And I'll say, I'll be talking along and then I'll say, hey, you wouldn't believe what happened to me last night. And then I will fake a joke, right? I'll say, you know, I was going down the street and there was an elephant there and there was a monkey on top of it and he was riding this thing like a camel, right? And I looked, I undid my window screen and I looked up there and I said, monkey, what are you doing? And the, and the elephant turned around and said, don't ask him what he's doing. And then I stop, right? And then I say to the audience, okay, so none of you are sitting there thinking, that's total rubbish. There was no elephant and the monkey wasn't there because you got your mind thought, ah, he's telling us a joke. And when, we tell, when we're listening to a joke, that is the only time that our brain will automatically suspend judgment. It is the only time that without any conscious effort, we suspend judgment because we're waiting for the punchline. Once we get the punchline, then we'll have some judgment and we'll say, that's so funny or that's not funny at all or whatever the, our reaction will be. But we automatically suspend judgment until the punchline. That's a really hard thing for humans to do. We only automatically do it in one context, that's that joke. Yet that's what we need when we want creative leadership. We need this ability to suspend judgment. We need people to believe that they'll be listened to. We need uh, ideas to be put forward without anyone passing judgment, even in their mind. You know, I'm listening to you talk. I'm already thinking, nah, I didn't like what you did to me last year. And I'm sure as hell don't like what you're about to offer up here. Now, I'm just going to reject it. It's like, yeah, but, you know, let's. And there shouldn't be any yeah buts when someone's throwing ideas for, right? And so the Bible in this space is, is um, the bono. Edward de Bono has this stuff totally covered in terms of how our brain works. That's his past occupation was a brain surgeon, um, and he coined the word lateral thinking back in 1969 when he moved from being a brain surgeon to someone who talked about creativity. And I had good fortune to have lunch with him in 2003, and I said to him, wow, you know, you must be so impressed with what you've managed to achieve, you know, this is incredible. And he said, no, no, I don't feel like I've actually achieved very much at all. And I said, wow, 50 books, you know, I've got four or five of them. And he said, yeah, so what do you know about those books? And I, I didn't quite get what he was asking me. And he said, I, 1969, and I had one idea, lateral thinking. So instead of just left foot follows the right, and we sort of stuck in a certain way of thinking, we can enter a thinking space from a different random sort of entry point, find a new way to sort of come at it. And he said, I've written 50 books to describe the one same process. I've called it hats. I've called it colors. I've called it this or that. 
He said, and you know what? I've solved problems for people all over the world, and yet there's not one government in the world that uses lateral thinking as a standard way of solving their problems. He said, so I don't think like I've achieved anything. And I thought, you know, it really struck me that, you know, he was so focused on changing the way people think, but the way we think is so hardwired that it's so hard to do that. And the joke, using the joke, is it cuts through. When you use that joke, and I had a lot of imagery, so I show people images and ask them what's on the screen, and when they see those images, they all trip themselves up. And I'm sort of trying to show well, your brain so hardwired, it sees things that aren't there, it misses things that are there, and that it's almost impossible for you to suspend judgment. So if you think of all the work that Edward Bono's done to try and create creative leadership, it's a tough space. It's a really tough space to be in. But that's where it comes back to this separation from the herd because we tend to behave in a particular way which is representative of the herd. No one's going to get fired for not criticising their boss at a meeting, right? But you should be, right, because you've got this ability to help solve a problem but you're worried about something else and so you don't engage in a problem, a process which could actually help, right? It's only once we start separating people out from the herd and helping them to understand their personality and helping them to understand who they are to become sort of have this transforming mind so that they can apply it to a transforming life so that when they rejoin the herd, we get this authentic union where they are still an individual operating within this collective space. And so if everybody achieved that, and then everyone was mindful of the differences that we all have and hold. So I, I can't, my reading and writing is still very, very poor. Very, very, I'm not sure what level it would be at, but it's at a very low level. My writing's getting better because I'm doing it more and more and more. But if you asked me to write a paragraph down and you dictated something to me, you would say, wow, this guy really can't spell, can he? Right? So I can either go and hide under a bush and think, wow, I can't spell so people, you know, might have this judgment about me. Or I can say, well, but I can think, right? So if I can – so it's like you're allowed, you're allowed to think about things without actually having to spell them out, right? There are just certain times when we need to write things down. So I can accept my inability to do something and not worry about it because most of the time that I engage with people, it is through – talking with them and interacting with them and then I find ways to to communicate it through writing and in, in, you know using obviously spell check is a good one <laughs> <laughs> yeah now that's a really really interesting conversation to have everyone I'll bring you all back in now because um Colin and I have been on a bit of a journey there we talked about entrepreneurship we talked about the pedagogies we talked about the passion and and catering for the dreaming mind and then we took it right through to De Bono and the, the hats, everything that we teach in the schools and that whole idea of being hardwired and rejecting that entrepreneurial um, trait that we all need to achieve and be the best we can be. If we remove ourselves from the norm or from, from the herd, as you call them, Cole, and we just have a go, there's a very good chance that most of us can make a difference. Um, would, you, would you agree with that? Absolutely, especially in this world, because the very factors that are that are ripping this world apart, in terms of it, the world of work, are the very factors that create the opportunity. So, if I want to write about, you know, if I want to write a story 
about bugs that, um, you know, want to do something, who want to play sport. You know, I want to write a story about bugs that want to be the best cricket-playing bugs, so to speak, in the world. There is someone out there that wants that story, right? Now, is that group of somebody's a big enough audience that we could make a living out of writing those stories? Well, we, would, we can work that out, right? We can sort of try and explore it, right? And we, in fact, we can, we can trial it, right, by writing a short story in that space that might only take us a few days and seeing what the interest is like. So there's never been a better time to be able to sort of connect up your creative and your intellectual passions and things like that and trial them. In the past, I had to get, you know, an editor. I had to get a publisher to approve this. And so it was all these huge hurdles that we had to go through, you know, like we know with um, Harry Potter story, you know, the huge hurdles. Now we can go straight out there and we can actually try things and we can instantly gain this feedback. So we could never do that before. We can now. And so the challenge is trying to actually help people to say, okay, so you have this intellectual capacity to do this, but do you have the intellectual capacity to connect it to, so you think you can create some value, so you conceive this value, now can you, and you can create it in terms of there's this latent potential, but can you capture that value? And can you critique your efforts to do so all the way through in such ways that you can reorganize yourself and change the way you do it the next time you're actually attempting to do it. So you're always learning through that process. So the failure might be, well, I think I can make, you know, a lot of money from doing this. And then you realize maybe that's not a big segment. So maybe I might broaden it. So it's not just about crickets. Now it's about spiders, you know, and if need be, I'll chuck a vampire in there just to sort of pull it into that. <laughs> it's that area there as well, right? But it's an exploratory game that we want to get people to actually think about. But it's actually understanding you think you can conceive value, great, we want to encourage that. You think you can create the value, we're only going to know that if you're able to capture it. And then to the extent that you can or can't, we want you to be able to step back and critique what's working, what's not working, so that when you go back to the beginning step of wanting to conceive the next lot of value, you're now informed by the reality of this system that you're engaging with. And so that in itself is really the, it's the whole game for an individual wanting to make their way in the world. And that could be, I'm gonna run a, an office support desk from home. I'm really, really good at helping people manage their lives. So rather than being an organization and being a personal assistant to someone, I'm gonna do it from home, I'm gonna be a personal assistant to several people. And lots of people do, right? And But what they need, obviously, is they need the social connections so that people understand and trust them and, and all those sorts of things. And so um, understanding how the game, what are the rules of the game? right that's the big challenge that we have for a lot of people so it's it's more than just learning to learn you know it's also learning the rules of the game which change as well right so that's always a challenge for us too yeah and the way we put it to our kids everyone is that in order to be a clown you've got to be serious first um, so that you can go back yeah. and be a clown, uh, and that and that's really interesting. Uh, there is a lot of fear out in uh, the community about jobs not being there anymore as shops close down and retail shops down as everybody goes online. But the more things change, the more things stay the same. I think. I think there's just as many opportunities opening up there, and it's a really really exciting time to be entrepreneurial. I think encouraging our students to be entrepreneurial is just such a gift. 
Uh, and I do worry, I worry very much about uh, the kids who leave us at school and go on to university, um, that that dropout rate at the end of year one is a very real problem because we're not meeting their needs uh, in, in the best way that we can. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in creative leadership, Cole, so it was interesting that you showed me how to do it because that's my direction for this year as, as we move forward. I think there's a real need um, to teach our adults to, to be more creative and what better people to teach um, creativity than creatives, I think. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm more than, happy to, more than happy to share with you what I use, you know, offline. We can have a chat and I can share with you and, and you can have, use some of the resources that I use um, because um, more often than not, it's this challenge of hierarchy and the assumed roles that people play and the lack of appreciation of different temperament types. Mm -hmm. So some people are naturally risk takers, some people are naturally process thinkers, some people are naturally community oriented in their thinking, and some people are naturally wanting to take control. We can collapse, and this goes right back to Jung's work, it goes right back to the way the Greeks used to think about it, Myers-Briggs tends to muddy the water by breaking those four things down into 16 things. And so that, while that's potentially more accurate, it doesn't help me to identify who's one of the other 15 or 16 that I'm talking to. But if we bring it back to four, you can, you can find enough cues in your interactions with people uh, to actually start seeing the essence. So not their whole person, but the essence of who they are. Right? So when you walk into someone's office, you can tell straight away, who they're not, right? And you've got a pretty good understanding of who they might be. There's a lovely quote that I always use, which is, if we all speak the same language, how come we don't understand each other? Mm. So we find ourselves all speaking English, but that doesn't help us, does it? Because someone's focus is on process and someone else's focus is on the big picture. Those two things are diametrically opposed. And someone else just wants to be able to take control and solve this problem in a way that's efficient. And someone else just wants us all to be doing it together. So there's relationships across the sides of these things, but there's these diametrically opposed things. And so when we use the one language to say something, you know, and our focus areas are on certain things, it appeals to some people while at the same time not appealing to other people. And so we can change the words we use when we're trying to interact with people if only we can understand what they are in where they position themselves and just walking into someone's office you know straight away it's neat it's tidy there's brag things on the wall there's no brag things on the wall it's very homely it looks like it could be their lounge room all of those basic things tell us a lot about the likelihood of that person's temperament you know I'm having a bit of chuckle here, everyone, because if you could see this room now, he would certainly label me as a certain type of person, maybe a creative, because there's stuff and books everywhere. Yeah. But there's a very neat map of Australia behind us, Cole. Uh, so that may send a message that, yes, one well, day. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things that's really important to think about in being labelled, right, is that to creatively solve a problem, we need to understand first what is the problem. And that's where our politicians always fail us. They never actually tackle the problem. They tackle something that looks like they're appearing to, you know, address an issue, right? But more often than not, they would have to alienate themselves quite often uh, from certain constituents by actually saying, okay, well, this actually is the problem and we're going to have to do this to solve it, right? So we tend to sort of do nothing about problems, big problems, and we just make it look like we attempted to do something. So first step, we need judgment, very, very specific judgment in the room. 
which helps us to understand the nature of a problem. Then to move on to creating potential solutions, we need to get judgment totally out of the room. There is no judgment in the room. Every idea has got potential merit. Um, and we want to use humor and other such ways to actually generate all sorts of crazy ideas, right? Then we need to bring judgment back into the room where we can evaluate the likelihood of these, any of these ideas that we haven't had judgment on. Now we bring the judgment into the room to try and work out which could or could not solve a thing. And then we have to work out how we're going to sell this particular solution and implement it to a range of different stakeholders. Now, across those four steps of having judgment, no judgment, having judgment, being able to sell to diverse stakeholders, I'm yet to meet. In 17 years as an educator teaching creativity, I'm yet to meet any one individual who can naturally do all four steps. So this is a big problem for us. You're not going to be a creative problem solver just being one person. And unless you're schizophrenic and you can sort of flip yourself easily between these different modes of thinking, that's not likely to happen. So you need to be able to draw on the diverse talents and abilities of the people in a group or bring people in to help you, right? If you can acknowledge, like me, I'm not very good with judgment. That's not really my strong point. I'm more of an explorer. I'm curious about things. I'm happy to throw out an idea for something looks shinier or better. So I need the judgment person with me on either side of that process. I can come up with great ideas, but it doesn't mean I'll be great at implementing them. Once I've got an idea, I can most probably sell it okay because I've got lots of conviction in the way I talk, right? So I can use that to my... But these other two steps, if I've got them wrong, it's not going to work, right? So you never have to worry about being labelled as a thing because you, whatever it is you are, you have a vital role to play in the process as long as you can be connected up successfully. And again, it's that unconscious herd. If people are in a herd and they've got no idea how they belong to that herd this unconsciousness of this sort of herd or this undifferentiated um, herd, we need to be able to have people come out of it, learn about themselves, learn what they're capable of, and then when they go back into that space, they now have this potential for this authentic union, which I think is a really neat way of, so it's almost like to transform this, we have to transform the individuals. It's almost like all the Lego bricks are red, but if we could take them away and paint them up different colours, we'd look at them and say, wow, now we've got yellow bricks and black bricks and white bricks and blue bricks and, gee, you know, we've got these different bricks. It's not just all one colour. So how do we use the different colours to build that wall or to build that whatever we're going to build? And it's almost like going from one colour Lego bricks to all of a sudden they become different colour Lego bricks. That's, I just made that analogy up. I think that's not a bad one. <laughs> And it's tapping right into the Edward de Bono um, yeah, yeah, yeah. coloured hats. <laughs> and everybody, I with my creative um, leadership uh, workshops, I've linked up with a lovely lady, Jennifer Gale, and she's a very practical businesswoman. And so I'm allowed to be the ideas girl and she's going to do all the boring stuff and she loves the boring stuff. So, so I've actually found someone who can do all that for me, which is really, really exciting. Uh, now, Cole, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Everyone, uh, Cole runs a wonderful podcast called The Reasonable Adventure, Adventurer and you'll hear all his philosophical meanderings uh, there each week. I strongly recommend that you go and have a listen and I can guarantee that you'll come away thinking a little bit more deeply about what it, whatever it is you're pondering. Uh, I, I always get 
way too much out of talking with you, Cole, and you send me off in, in all different directions. Um, your book, Manifesto, How to Teach Entrepreneurship, that you're reading is very, very interesting. Your own books that you've written for anyone who's interested and wants to know a little bit more about Cole, he's got a wonderful, wonderful website, which I notice has been updated and made fancy, Cole. Um, and it's he's got The nature, uh, the Naked Educator and Lessons Learned. He's got, uh, what else have you got there, Cole? There's another one. 31 uh, emerges. Yeah, you tell me. You tell us. Well, there's the midlife memoir. You've got to write one of those when you're 50. I was either buy a car or write a book. I figured it was cheaper to buy, write the book. Um, and there's, yeah, the 32 emerging laws of enterprise education. I'm about to redo that. In It'll come across into my book. I should we take that off Amazon and incorporate it into this new book. Um, and I haven't actually done a lot of podcasting of late. I sort of got to the point where I thought, I just, one, I've been too busy. Um, and but I'm in the process of getting back into it. So I've the first 50 episodes were really about the reasonable adventurer. The second 50 episodes were really about my life and working in and around that notion of building reasonable adventurers. And the next at least 50 episodes are, I'm about to launch into my life as a philosopher of adventuring, which is this next phase. So I'm sort of quite excited to sort of tick it over 100 episodes. And move it, which I'm going to do when I'm in the UK because I quite like. I'll do one live. I think I might do a podcast live from Abbey Road or something like that. Something like that. Could humorous do it from the um, Oxford Bookshop or something like that? Make, make yeah. us happy. Yeah, I'll, find, I'll find an interesting place to do it from. Hopefully, it's not like the Old Bailey or something like that. <laughs> All right. Now, talking to Cole, everyone, we could talk for hours because he's such an interesting man. Have a fussy around his website. I think it was just colejones.com. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, no, you find it uh, teaching-entrepreneurship.com. Yeah, I'll, I'll reference it in the podcast for yeah. anyone who wants to know more. Uh, always an interesting man. Uh, if you've got kids and you're encouraging them to, to follow their dreams and their passions in their lives, um, there's, some, there's some great stuff on there from the Lean Startup. Um, you've got this wonderful heading called Provocations, which we didn't even touch on this time, and I'm not going to let you talk because we'll go off again on another tangent, um, but it's all about mental freedom or mental health and freedom, uh, which is what we want, we want for everyone around us. Uh, thank you, Cole. Uh, it's a great way to kick off the year. I can't wait to see where my new year takes me with this creative leadership. I should have known that you'd know something about it. Well, look, all the best to you in this endeavour and all the best to your listeners for the rest of this year. All right. Talk again soon. Uh, that's all from us at Rider on the Road for another week. Bye.